Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody, and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. This is Dr. Harry Anderson. I'd like to visit with you a little bit about hay. I get so many questions about alfalfa versus grass hay, some grass hay versus this grass hay or that grass hay, and there are all kinds of different grass types hays out there. And uh, uh, I have strong feelings about how these line up. First of all, in general, alfalfa versus overall grass hay, uh, if you kind of lump them together, my opinion, alfalfa is the king. Alfalfa is almost always superior to whatever grass hay you're talking about as long as it's good quality. Now, alfalfa hay has, I think, gotten a bad rap because a lot of people associate high protein with nervous horses, high protein with high-headed horses. Uh, I've heard talk about alfalfa causing liver problems, causing kidney problems, and all kinds of different things. In my experience, I'm really not sure where that comes from. I've not had that experience feeding alfalfa hay. I have a lot of clients that feed nothing but good quality alfalfa hay and a high protein supplement along with it. So protein in itself is not a negative. If they have too much protein from the alfalfa, they burn it as energy. So you say, well, that's a waste of efficiency. Not really. They use it at the same efficiency as they would the the starch or fiber in, in that alfalfa. But let's talk a little bit about the nutrient profiles. Nutrient profiles, you're going to find a much higher calcium level and a higher phosphorus level in alfalfa than you are in most any kind of grass hay, except some of the really young, tender uh, grass hay. And if you want to look at the grass hay, uh, Timothy would come the closest probably, if cut properly, would come the closest to alfalfa in nutrient composition. And then you have orchard grass would would come in there fairly close to that, broom grass, uh, there are several that, that are kind of in that, that secondary mix. But the bottom line is alfalfa is going to be more predictable in its digestibility. Grass hay is going to be less predictable. Grass hay is going to vary a lot more in its overall uh, profile of protein and phosphorus and fiber. Protein and, and uh, phosphorus are very critical you get a lot of those from your hay. In fact, you, you get most of that from your hay. Protein can vary in grass hay from 15 or 16 percent down to five or six percent. And I find this all the time where people have problems with their horses. They're not doing well, especially they call me and say, your program isn't working anymore. I, what did you change in your program? I said, I didn't change anything. What did you change in your hay? Well, I'm buying the hay from the same guy I did last year. That really doesn't mean a whole lot 
because if you change the harvest date of typical grass for maybe it's a weather condition, you can't get it harvested on time or something, and you, you go a week or two weeks later than normal, you can drop the protein from 12 or 14% down to 5 or 6% real easy. And I find this happens. So if you're going to use a predictable source of hay, alfalfa is going to be the best. If you have the known uh, harvesting and you do a, an assay on grass hay, I think grass hay is just fine. But I strongly encourage you to get your hay analyzed and have it known what's in it before you make a decision on how to supplement it. And grass hay is much more critical than that. Please uh, go to a lab, get, get a good assay, then work with a nutritionist or some professional and figure out what you need to go along with that grass hay. And if you may need to increase the digestibility of it by using some digestibility enhancing program, products in your program. So don't just buy hay based on someone else's word. Do your own assay and then make your own decisions. And if you have any questions about that, you can go to my website, totalfeeds.com, and there's a place on there where you can uh, get your feed uh, assayed, and they will get the results to me, and I will let you know what I think of it. Nowadays, hay would be saved in late May or early June. In the 1930s, however, it would not have been cut until early or mid-July. It was discovered that as grass ages, it becomes less nutritious. Hay is produced by cutting down a meadow of grass, turning it over a couple of times during a five-day period, taking it into the barn and leaving it there to be fed to the animals over the winter. That was the simple basic principle of haymaking. It was seldom as easy a process as that. Weather forecasting in the 1930s was not very accurate. Some would say that little has changed on the forecasting front in the past 70 years. So at haymaking time, there was a lot of studying the moon, the sky at night, and various other signs which were supposed to foretell what the weather was going to be. Rain on cut grass washes out the nutrients, as does too much sun. Overworking with machinery was also not recommended if you wanted good hay. So when the weather looked settled, the mowing of the hay would begin. With one field down and in the process of being saved, Patrick is just starting the second sward of a heavier crop. This grass is damp and sticks in the cutting bar of the mowing machine. Something has to give, and it is the metal shaft of the mowing machine. There will be no more mowing today. Breaking a metal shaft like this shows the power that these two horses have. Ordering and receiving a new part for a machine back in the 30s could have taken a very long time, so broken parts were often repaired rather than replaced. Some craftspeople, such as the village blacksmith, were essential to the farmers, not only for shoeing the horses, but also for repairing broken farm implements. The following afternoon, Patrick was back in business, the shaft of his mowing machine repaired and working as good as new. This mower is a Deering International, made in Canada in the early 1920s. Irish foundries like Pierce of Wexford were by this time turning out hundreds of mowers of different sizes, which could be pulled by one horse or two. By 1900, 
It is believed that there were more than 20,000 mowing machines in Ireland. Hailed as another major breakthrough, this machine with the addition of another seat and a few minor adjustments would again be needed in a few weeks' time for cutting the corn. A successful reaper had been developed by a Scotsman in 1828, but the side-mounted model, like the one we see here, was invented by the American Cyrus Hall McCormick from the Rockbridge County, Virginia, in 1831. McCormick did well with his reaper, for he was a multi-millionaire when he died in 1884 at the age of 75 years. At very busy times of the year, and especially at haymaking, it was common for the neighbours to help. A farmer often formed a partnership with his neighbours, exchanging labour on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as horses and machinery. Families that were down in their luck, elderly, sick or with very young children, were often helped at busy times of the farming year. The local priest or minister was always sure of plenty of assistance when his hay needed to be saved. It was not uncommon to see four or five people working in a meadow, although as many as a dozen might be necessary if the crop was heavy or the weather bad. In many cases, women were expected to work in the meadow at haymaking, and indeed if men were scarce, could also have been expected to work the horses. The hay pike was a good, effective way to turn and shake the hay. This practice would have to be repeated many times if the weather was wet. It was said that hay could survive up to eight days of constant rain, but if the weather did not improve after that time, the hay would most likely be lost or its feeding value so badly affected that it would only be suitable for bedding. However, nowadays, as silage making is almost weatherproof, less and less hay is being made. The progress made in farming during the 20th century was already well underway in the 1930s, for although nearly all of the work was still being done by horses, many ingenious inventions were coming onto the market, which made the farmers less dependent on manpower. This one-horse hay turner, again manufactured in Wexford, could, if the weather was fine, save the hay without any hay pikes being used. The spikes of the turner would have lifted up any damp grass and turned it over to be saved by the sun. There were various types of hay turners and kickers around at that time, some pulled by one horse and some by two. Whichever way they were operated in the meadow, these machines all had one thing in common. They were slowly but surely doing away with the need for large-scale manpower on the farm. Between 1900 and 1930, the number of farm labourers on the land had halved, and by the 1960s, that number had halved again. Today, farming is mostly a one-man operation. Any farmer with a machine like this one would have been very popular with his neighbours. The horse-drawn hay rake had teeth, which could be raised or lowered, using a lever in front of the driver's seat. When the makings of a peak have been brought together, the men have set about their task, as they have done many times before. It is now four days since the hay was cut. 
four days of good dry weather and sunshine. The men are building a hay peak, which in spite of rain, could be left in the field for a number of weeks. In due course, these hay peaks will be removed to the stack and used to build into one large stack. Hay had to be completely dry before the large hay peak was built, for if there was too much moisture in it, it was likely to rot, overheat, and in very extreme cases, go on fire. Patrick and his son Michael are making a grass rope. This will be used to tie down the stack. A grass rope made from hay was quite strong, and in early times would have been used as harness for horses and donkeys. A week later, Patrick and Michael have started drawing the hay peaks from the meadow to the yard, where they will be made into a larger stack and stored over the winter. For many centuries, the hay was simply forked from the hay peaks and built onto a hay cart. Hay carts varied from one part of the country to another. Some had to be low slung if they were working high ground. First invented at the start of the 19th century, this hay cart with a two-man operated pulley was capable of taking the entire peak onto the hay cart. And although a slow enough operation, this method was used in farms until the advent of the buck rake during the 1950s. The father and son team will clear this field of peaks and before nightfall. It was always a relief to see the hay safely in, as the quality of the hay determined the health and value of the farmer's livestock, and ultimately how much income the sale would bring in. Hi, I'm Charlie, you're on Anarchy Acres. Welcome to the farm today. Today I want to talk to you about hay here on the farm on my homestead in Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin and how I use um, what I have to help feed my animals. Now if you're on a small farm and you have animals, you probably have to feed them hay. That's how we get them through the winter. Hay is a beautiful thing and it operates on a lot of scales. Here we're small scale, but it's still beautiful and it's an important part of what I do here on the farm. And first of all, hay is going to be, it's going to be grass. It's going to be alfalfa, it's going to be clover, it's going to be edible plants that can be dried out and fed to the animals during the winter. So, two things are going to come in, into play. First of all, the hay has to be ready. It's mature, it's ready to be cut. Second thing is the weather. Now, weather can get interesting because it's different in every part of the country. Around here, um, it's been getting wetter and wetter, it seems, for the last couple of years, and it's hard to predict. Hay is going to take, in midsummer, two to three days to dry down and be cured so that it will, uh, one, last, and two, be safe to put into an enclosure like a barn. Because uh, if it's too wet, um, it can rot, which is bad for the animals. It's going to be, it's gonna be um, moldy and not so great. And also, if it's wet in the wrong way, it could actually combust and uh, threaten the structure with a fire. So uh, hay's got to be cured and then put away, and for that, you need dry weather. So. It's never going to be, if you're in southeastern Wisconsin, you're going to see things like two sunny days, followed by the third day being 
40% chance of rain. They don't tell you what it is, if it's 40% chance of a, of a hurricane, uh, three inches of rain, or if it's just going to sprinkle a little bit and not be much more than do. But you've got to start looking at your forecast. It can be a little OCD, um, but you want to see at least three days. And if you do see rain in the forecast, you'd like to see um, blue skies, good weather on both sides of that possible rain. So that if it does get rained on, then the next day you can come out and spread it out and it's going to dry out anyway. Um, what you really don't want to see is a whole week of wet weather possibly or maybe 40% chance for five, six, seven days in a row. Um, those are not going to be great days to cut hay. Um, the best thing to do really on a small farm is to kind of hedge your bet and just be cutting a little bit um, or a moderate amount on consecutive days where the weather looks like it's got a good chance. So you just kind of keep going. So once you've found the weather that you want and the, and the hay is about ready to be cut, you take your scythe, in my case, go out and sharpen it, and look for places to make some hay. Around here on my farm, I'm going to be cutting in my man cave around all my uh, equipment that's kind of retired in one corner. I'll be cutting from the headlands of the garden. I'll be cutting at my neighbor's next door. When I can get ahead of her greenskeeper, he's pretty fast at cutting the grass, but I'm allowed to cut it first if I can mark it off and get to him before Jim cuts it. So um, I'm getting a small areas um, to cut in different parts of my farm situation, and I'm going to try to cut that um, with my scythe. So, now cutting with the scythe can really be beautiful, and it's, when it works right, it's a lot of fun. And good grass, you're looking for grass that's a little uh, wet. Ideal time is to go out early, five, six in the morning when there's some dew. That really seems to make the scythe slide easily. And when it works beautifully, um, it is beautiful. It just cuts nice, the stuff kind of falls in front of you, and you can just keep cutting and cutting. Good person's supposed to be able to do uh, two acres in a day. I've never done uh, close to two acres in a day, um, but I cut a little bit now and a little bit then. So once you've cut your hay, hopefully it's, it's kind of laid out in nice rows, and if you get handy with a scythe, it, it's pretty nice. It'll lay out in nice rows, um, and then you're going to want to at some point start raking it together. Maybe it'll sit around for a day, maybe two days in the sun, um, but after that point, rake it into rows and get it up off the ground, especially if you're going to see uh, some possible rain in the forecast. Um, those windrows really help the hay continue the curing process. So if I see rain in the forecast, which is not what I want, but if I see that, I'm actually going to rake it up and, and make the rows as tight as possible, high as possible. And the worst thing about hay getting rained on is when it sits low on the ground. So if I can puff it up uh, as much as possible, that's really going to help it get through a, a rain situation. But hopefully you got beautiful clear weather and uh, sun, sun of course, and light wind and low humidity are going to dry that hay out beautifully and it'll be cured in short order. You want to see your hay, um, it can bend without breaking. Um, that's one of the signs that it's hay. If it, uh, if it bends and breaks, you've gone a little too far, but that's, that's better than not being dry enough in the first place. So get it pretty dry. 20% humidity is what you're shooting for. Um, people will just say when it feels like, hey, that's not going to help a newcomer. I understand that. But you're going to dry it down until most of the moisture is out of that plant. So rain does happen, and if it does happen, just don't panic. Um, go out as soon as you can and rake it back up. But you're always going to have a strategy, and this strategy happens actually every day of haymaking. Um, don't rake before maybe 9 or 10 in the morning because you want that dew to, to get off the top at least. Same thing if it gets rained on. Um, get the top part kind of dry and then turn it over. But for sure, if it does get rained on, uh, start turning it as soon as possible regularly. After a few days, um, or maybe, maybe a day or two, the color's going to start changing. And you can't hurt it by raking too much. So um, rake it once a day, twice a day. Um, keep finding those green um, 
kind of damp spots in the, in the windrow, flip it over to expose it to the sun, and start turning it into hay. So once we're satisfied that the hay is cured, it's time to start making those stacks, um, pushing them together. So you can go down those rows, it's a lot of fun to all of a sudden just push all the hay together. And here on the farm, I live on a four acre homestead, I'm gonna use a couple strategies for gathering my hay. Sometimes I'll put the uh, haystack real close to the hay field and I can do a lot of it just by hand. Um, of course, I love to get one of the donkeys involved, hitch up the cart, and if it's a further away, that's how I'll look at the hay over to the haystacking area. We use pole stacks when we do outdoor storage here. A pole stack is a tr traditional way of getting as much of the hay up off the ground and protecting as much of it as possible. Now, a haystack is not a perfect oh. way of storing hay. If you've got a, a space in the loft, by all means, put all your hay up into the hay loft, and that'll keep it really, really good. However, an outdoor haystack is beautiful and fun, and we use them very successfully here on Anarchy Acres. So the first thing is put some sticks on the ground around a pole. The sticks will help keep um, as much hay off the ground as possible, because that hay that st stays on the ground all winter for sure is not going to be very palatable. So the secret to making a good uh, pole stack is to work evenly as you go up. Um, keep walking around the stack, packing the hay in little bits and pieces. Don't favor one side. If you favor one side, it's sure to get lopsided and it's not going to stack up very high. The higher you can go, uh, the, more, the less you're going to expose to the elements and the easier it's going to be able to dry out from the side if there is some re residual moisture in there. So stack it as high as possible. Keep raking, especially down low, vertically, and that helps shed water and it kind of, the whole thing just gets better and better. So keep raking and, and scraping at the bottom. Um, throwing it back on the top, packing it a little. If you want to get ambitious, I don't do this, but if you want to get ambitious, people actually go on top of the hay and start walking it down, um, push, push, push. I just stay on the ground and, and walk around it, but keep walking around that haystack and making it um, uh, as symmetrical as possible and as high as possible. So hay here on the farm is part of the whole cycle that we try to do here on Anarchy Acres, which is to do as much as possible right here on the farm. Hay puts the whole thing into, into motion because my animals are gonna eat hay during the winter and in the springtime they're gonna plow up the field and we'll put some of that manure that they've created from eating the hay and, and, uh, and I collect that. So that the whole cycle comes together uh, and hay is part of that cycle because it's, it's natural, comes here just from the, run, the, the, the rain and the sun that hits my four acres and I cut it and store it, make use of that, the animals eat it and um, it puts the whole cycle in operation. So. I hope um, you've learned a little bit about how we use hay here on Anarchy Acres and how we produce it. Um, please visit anarchyacres.com or the blog. Um, visit the store, get inspiration. Remember, you can farm on uh, five acres, 500 acres, or in a flower pot. It's still part of your food system, and the more you are involved in your food system, uh, the better it is for you, um, for your community, and for the earth as a whole. So thanks a lot for watching. See you again soon. An early morning hike into the high mountain pastures of Rufayan in central Switzerland 
where the intrepid students are going to make hay today, even though it's not particularly sunny. We carried all the tools up to the pastures. For instance, the scythes. These are sharpened the night before. The metal blades are hammered to make them very thin and sharp. We say in German they are gedenkelet. The work on the steep grassy slopes is treacherous, so it's traditional for farmers to wear crampons or nailed boots to improve their grip. They also take rakes and shields for their flints, used to sharpen the scythes, and the scythes themselves, of course. These have to be checked for alignments before the haymakers set off. It's not exactly easy. Experienced farmers do it from when they're little kids, but when you do it for the first time, you make a lot of mistakes. You get stuck, the grass doesn't cut properly, and you can't really master the technique in one single day. But we were still able to do something. We did cut a bit. I love the mountains and I'm interested in alpine farming. That's why I came on the course. We just had to get stuck in straight away. Scythe in hand and off we went. It was super. I love it. Once you get used to the moves, it's no problem. I think for us Swiss, it's important that we look after the countryside and mountain regions. Otherwise, everything will become completely overgrown. As a botanist, I come and uh, look at this, the, the land that the farmers want to start using as uh, they, they want to make this wiltoy, and I'm the person that has to decide if the quality is good enough, if there are enough plants. So I've got, in, in shortest time, I find six different plants that uh, tell me this is uh, the real type of meadow that we, we want to keep. Switzerland is one of the few alpine countries in which haymaking continues on steep mountain slopes. This is partly because farmers who do it receive subsidies. Nearly 100 farmers gather their own hay in Canton Uri. After all the hard work, a well-earned lunch. Then it's back to raking up the cut grass. It's tied into nets called pinkles, and the heavy loads are carried on the farmers' backs. Course teacher and farmer Carrie Giesler shows how it's done. Thank you. 
Wie schwer ist das? Es wäre jetzt sicher 60 Kilo schon sicher gewesen. Ja, es war sicher 60 Kilo, gewesen, ja. Und das tut nicht weh? Nein, nein. Gewohnheitssachen? Das, sicher, das ist eine Übungssache, ja. Das ist sicher eine Übungssache, für das zu tragen, ja. The hay now has to be sent to the Giesler Farm, 1.2 kilometers across the valley. And away they go. Extra winter fodder for the Giesler's 20 cattle for the winter. A job well done, with a little help from their friends. You know, this grass-fed vegetable system using the scythe and fertility grown on the farm, I don't water. I haven't watered in seven years here, including transplant day. I don't weed if I keep the grass on the beds. You know, don't let the soil life eat it all. And um, I don't fertilize. All because of a handheld scythe. Right. Okay. You know, so that's a pretty incredible difference. I mean, yeah. that's something that it could be game changing for small farmers. Yeah. You know, and this is all um, technology that's from, you know, like as long ago, the scythe blade that I got on my scythe is made by a company that was in business 500 years ago. Wow. So it's in this, Austria. This, this is scythe, scythe supply. supply. So they actually okay. buy the blades and put together these scythes. It's a European okay. style. It's not the one your okay. dad had in the barn. Right, no. Um, I heard know, that the European one is lighter, more ergonomic. Crazy light. Okay. I mean, like three pounds. And then, believe it or not, you sharpen it with a hammer. Uh -huh. I mean, people, this is such a, I thought it was such a crazy good idea. So imagine you've got a thin edge, right, that you've stoned, and so the bevel's kind of getting steeper. Yeah. You put it on an anvil and pound it out thin, okay. right? So now you've got a razor edge. Nice. And then high ca carbon steel, when you pound it, it also case hardens. Okay. Hammer hardening effect. So now you've got this razor blade that's harder. Okay. And then in the field, you're slowly stoning, and it goes back, uh, and then you bring it back and peen it again okay. with a hammer. Makes sense. And if you want to, I can show you that, too. Okay, it's pretty let's cool. do that. Scythe blades, because I know scythe supply. Nice. I mean, not only, you know, so a few more. These are brush blades. You can actually, they're like small axes. Nice. Um, but I kind of downed a, one blade. This is probably my favorite blade. It's called the Mr. Scott's. It's got a really, see the tip, how it really dips down? Yes. So imagine when you're coming up to a tree and there's grass growing here, all you do is put this against the back edge of the tree and you can't hurt the tree. Okay. See, see what I mean? Yeah. And the oh, kid, I see, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you put it up against the tree and then you do that and it's so razor sharp, it, it'll cut. So okay. this is killer more better than a weed whacker. Okay. Demo, so yeah. this was a tree, right? So you, you know, there's grass growing right here. You just put it up against here and then do this. And I can show you in the field how okay. it works. All right. And the other thing is killer is think about that electro netting, right? Yes. Which, you know, you're always trying to keep it from grounding. If you put this against the back of the netting, you're always going away. So I can trim right up next to it. Okay. You follow me? Imagine this yeah. is electro netting. You, you push against right it there. and then... So there's not, I mean, you can go right So you can there. start from just holding it against there. You don't have to have a momentum of a swing. No. You just hold it there and then chop. Right. Okay. And I'm actually a hired scythe now, so I spend a day a week down okay. at Tide Mill Farm mowing their electric fences. Okay. Think about pig fences. Yeah. They're four inches off the ground, right? 
So I can go right under it. I'm not cool. carrying the weight of a weed whacker, right? All right. And it runs all the time as long as <laughs> I'm healthy enough. Okay. It's an incredible tool. People should know more about it. Well, show us how to sharpen this thing, and then let's go do it. Okay. So this is an anvil. It's got a hint of a little curve, right? And so this blade also will have a little bit of a curve. So as I'm stoning in the field, right? So I'm doing this. Well, I get this. So that's how I'll touch it up in the field, right? How often do you have to touch it up when? It... See, that's what everybody wants to know. They want to. What it is is when it starts mowing good, you got to touch it up, okay. right? Yeah. So it's all a feedback loop. Okay. Right after I've peened, I might go 10, 12 minutes. Before okay. I stone, by the time I'm needing to paint again after mowing maybe a quarter acre, yeah. um, I might be stoning every minute. Okay. Just so I got a good cut. But the st all stoning is, imagine this is on the thing. I'm done. Okay. So it ain't like this big thing. It's more of a break and look around. Okay. You know? But so during that, you know, may I mow a quarter acre in maybe, you know, four hours or three hours. Then that bevel that I peened out before that was really thin and sharp now is very increased. It's more of, you know, like that. And what I'm going to do with the anvil is put it right there and squeeze it out, right? Okay. So all you do is, and I can show you, hopefully, you can see this. I hope you can. So I kind of pre-did this so you'd know what's going on. So I peened this area, right? Can you follow that? Yes. And then look how it, the wave kind of moves in. I haven't peened right here. Can you see that? Yeah. Can you see that in your eyes? Yes. Okay, so what I'm doing is drawing out that. And so that's going to be thinner and stronger. So all I do is... A, Put it on here. And you draw it out. You know, Europeans um, know well, so they pretty much all use anvil, but there's a jig that's pretty much no-brainer that they oh, okay. sell with the outfit that's okay. custom fit for you. So that's kind of like a, I can show you that later, but it's just a no-brainer way to peen. And I have burnished the edge so that I can see every stroke almost. In this light, I can't usually I'm out right on the edge. But all I'm doing is holding it right in the center and then hitting it. You don't have to hit very hard, but it's drawn out a little bit. But it's kind of cool. So I guess in Europe during hay season, every morning that's what you hear all over the valley. Is tink, 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 tink. There's even, a, I think the Austrians got a peening song. It's pretty cool. But you want to go mow? Yeah, let's do it. This field has never been mown, right? Um, she's been running her chickens here for four years. Um, during the middle of the summer, that'll be about four foot tall with goldenrod, asters, all that. You can see the remnants of that. Okay. Three, four years ago, I started mowing here, right? Okay. And so that's the difference. But what's amazing to me is oh, imagine wow. four years of chickens. The greenness there, I was expecting to be much greener than here where I've removed every bit of grass three cuts a year for four years. Wow. Why I would have run down is? the hay field again, right? Why do you think that is? I think it's the rotational grazing effect. Okay. I mean, the idea that if I do it, and like Salatin talks about, yep. let it get to the teenage grass, you know, it's just past it? the, the diaper grass right now. Okay. So but it's by, not, when I start down there, by the time I get down here, it'll be teenage grass because it's going to take me probably okay. 10 days. So you're harvesting this a hair early, but you got to get going. Right. And by the time I get here, it will be. And then the second cut will be really nice teenage grass. 
And then what I did in the fall is you'll see the remnants. I already moved one haystack. That's what we saw early there. There's the second haystack that um, I'm going to be moving later today after you guys leave probably. You know, and it's not like that's worse than that, but it's a disturbance that benefits me and the crops I grow. Because, I mean, that's a lot of wildlife habitat. Yeah, let's show this. I think we can see it better here. Mode with, mode with a scythe, not mode. So this was cultivated probably, Bob probably cultivated this 15 years ago. And it's a wet field. Right now, if you walked out there, I mean, you put a tractor out there, it would sink. So I'm able with this hand side uh -huh. to get a cut way before anybody could ever get in there with a machine. Now think about how I just heard um, Aaron talk about he just let his cows out the first time a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah. I think it was only a week ago. And they just ran out of the barn because they knew that was out there. You know, that <laughs> teenage just great grass. Okay, so they love it, right? But what if I give that to the microbes? Instead of the mulch hay, which we always give it the last stuff, what are they going to do with that high nutrient grass full of protein full of chlorophyll is it going to be it's going to be different i don't know better or worse but it's going to be different and nobody's doing it mm. so you start doing something like that then you get something i gotta grab my side what's the micro herd so imagine all those critters in the soil the bacteria the okay. worms the, you know all that stuff needs to eat so you know we give it the mulch hay which is crap hay that the big livestock won't eat right okay yeah. but let's say we give it the same stuff we give our best uh -huh. livestock what are they going to do with it in the soil their poop's going to be different i think yeah you know this i'm no scientist again this might be all a bunch of bull you know but i think there's some cool stuff potential going on i'm learning just to try stuff and yeah. see what happens this is it so this is this the is european the scythe. this is the european style scythe um, so you'll notice um, it's a it's not the humpy one that you know the American style yeah which and it's a lot lighter feel that oh my gosh compare that to weed this is like a performance bicycle tour de France scythe right here right and think about the <laughs> fact that they measured my arm length they call it the cubit right so yeah. and then they measure from the bottom oh. of your foot to your hip bone, this right? This is not cast. This not. This is not factored. This is custom. This is custom. That's where they decide where to drill the holes. You send them the measurement. Yep. Or they'll measure you if you come to Common Ground. Where's Common Ground? Common Ground is uh, that big fair that I oh. talked about in in September. That seventy thousand people come to Unity. So you Maine. can get these in America. You want to take, have them shipped from Europe? The, the only thing that's shipped from Europe is here. There's only oh. one other company that makes them in America. This site supply in Perry, Maine, which is only five miles away. So there's this kind of cool thing that okay. developed that I knew these people, so I bought one. I okay. thought it was a cool tool. Okay, so where do people get this? If they want to do this, where do they go? SiteSupply.com. SiteSupply.com. Okay, yep. cool. And I'll be going there. Yeah, I mean, wait until you see how well it works. Okay. So while you were probably having breakfast... Because I wasn't sure when you were coming. Yeah, we right? had brunch. So I come, you know, I went, I came out here probably at about 6. And I mowed until like 8.30. Okay. So you'll see how much I mow in that time. As a novice, you won't mow this much. It's kind of frustrating at first because it's not the same thing. But, um, and I think this field is three acres. Okay. And it takes me, this time of the year I can mow an acre in about eight hours. Nice. Okay. Do but, you do that in one day? Nope. I'm learning. Okay. You know, my theory is you know spend six to nine when you know and then go do the rest of my work see this okay, is a time yeah. of meditation for me too yeah because you won't believe how simple a, a stroke it is it's not full yeah. of effort so that's what i mowed in the time can you see that yeah 
So, and the thing is, Let's it takes it. all the grass and puts it in a windrow that I can pick up with a hay for Nice. So, <laughs> you can tell he's excited. He likes his eye. All right. All right, I do wear um, gloves. Just the, I mean, I've knock on wood. I've never cut myself with this razor when I'm sharpening it, but I think it's a potential, so I think this is just a good protection. Plus, it keeps my hands nice and lily soft. <laughs> um, so when you're stoning, I actually bring two different kinds of stones. These are um, natural stones from, they ship these in from somewhere in Europe. So there's two of them here. This is a very fine stone and a little coarser, right? So right after I peen, when I've got that thin edge, I'll use the fine stone, right? But after about an hour, that's not gonna be as effective. So then, you know, the rest of the two or three hours I'm mowing, I'll go to this one. This is called a Razatec and this is a Braganza. So I've been mowing a lot, so I'll use the Braganza. But the, the this technique is, so this is the rib. If you hold this on the rib and then do that, you're always gonna have the same angle. You're not gonna have to, you know, but if you hold it here, it's always gonna be, you follow me? Yeah, let me okay. see. Let me see if I can do it. Hold on the rib, just like that. Yep. I did it right? Yep. And screw nothing up? Nope. You can't okay. screw it up because that's, that's a default. <laughs> right. But if you were doing this, you'd be taking a lot of steel off. I see that. Follow it? I see that. So uh, this is how I do it. And then I'll usually just run that burr edge because what happens is when you're drawing it this way, it'll curl a little bit of a burr and then you knock that off. Okay. Okay, and that's all it is for sharpening. Uh-oh, watch out. And then the, the, the technique, it's best to mow in the morning when it's wet, believe it or not. Um, but even now, it's so light. But my swath is about 10 foot. So you kind of reach. And it's not, and you always want to have it on the ground, believe it or not. So see, even on the backstroke, I'm riding on the ground. So even as light as this tool is, I'm not even carrying the weight. And you can see, I mean, it's not much effort. It's more like when Richard Scott, who works for Site Supply, he's kind of my mentor. He said, stand like this, right? And then do this. What happens to your hands? They go up. Yeah. Now you put the scythe in it. That's all the effort you need to do when everything's right. But, you know, for a novice, I've watched these big burly guys come, because at Common Ground we do mowing lessons, kind of, and they'll come out there and... <laughs> you know, and even some of the permaculture gurus, um, I won't name names, <laughs> but they put it online. Uh -oh. Like, this is how you mow with a scythe. Uh-oh. But I won't name names. You just barely uh -oh. do it. But, yeah. Look. It's such Finesse. a great harvest. And it allows me to collect the fertility. And I love the sound. Can you smell the chlorophyll? Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You get this to the, the micro herd right now, and they're going to be happy. you something then other people start to value it so like i said now i'm a hired side i get you know the seedlings i'm going to pick up this week a friend of mine who has the um, greenhouse i mow her fence line and she does the seedling for me will we'll go right over the top of that little hump as long as you're holding it on the ground now it's getting dull. I, I felt the drag. It's starting. I yeah. was having effort. Is that right? because you hit the ground a little bit? Because be, the mound could be a little uneven. So then you go ahead and. Well, no, what you? I mean, I wear the gloves. So what I'll do is when it's wet, because you got to wipe the grass off. Oh, okay. But traditionally, it's a. You do this to wipe it. But I got sick. I mean, I mow so much. How many bends would that be <laughs> over the day? Because it's That's probably true. every five minutes. So I just wipe it with my hand, and I've never cut myself. Knock on wood. 
Okay, my turn, Jim. Okay. First time scything, y'all. So back left hand here, front right hand there. You do they make them for left-handed people do, too? But like this? Yep. The like thing this? about left-handers is because we use they in. Oh, we'll talk about it later. But yeah, kind of on the ground. Think about that, and think about your swinging like. Uh, <coughs> imagine that blade's on a string. I'm too high. Okay. And follow through. Put your okay. left hand in your back pocket. Ah. Here, now I, I'm not getting friendly, but. <laughs> Put it on the ground. Let me have it. Okay. Like yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're kind of pointing it down. Okay. See, I like teaching girls. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you start, it can be frustrating How when long you see somebody mow. Okay. Yeah, that was a good one. There we go. That was uh -oh. a great one. But then. Because we're kind of on the hump here. Yeah. Up. Yeah, that I, was my... a good one. You can feel that sweet spot when everything's right, can't you? Yeah. I'm, I'm probably bending over too much, Right, huh? And it's probably because you're a little taller than me, so it's probably you're having to bend over. Okay. But the thing is, that if it's on the ground the whole way, so that follow-through, there, there you go. There we go. You'd pick it up. You'd be good at it. The instinct is to lift it up yep. like this. It's supposed to be pointed down. It feels like it's going to go into the ground, but it doesn't. You know, when you've got a lot of, see, this has been mowed before. If there's a lot of thatch in it, that tends to happen. But see, because this has been mowed, that's why huh? I can mow so much faster. When it's oh. been cut. But see, that doesn't hurt nothing. They're tough. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to do it hard. No. I'm having no problem cutting it, barely swinging it. That's what. There we go. Yeah, that's what people really need to realize that you can move it like an inch a second and it would still oh. cut. I just don't cut that expensive camera. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Nice. That was a good run. Now think about now. See, the problem is, well, your arms are going to get tired. Now think of the idea that you're moving your whole body. Okay. That you're so I've got too much arms. Too, too many more yeah. arms. So imagine it, your arms are just kind of there holding it, it and not moving it. It's all the yeah. It and if you make your head follow the tip, it'll make you follow through and go uh -huh. all the way back. If you watch it. Ah. And it's all about how far the step um, with each one. Depends on how long it is, you know, it's going to be, you know, sometimes I'll take maybe only a two inch bite when it's three feet tall. But believe it or not, this tool with that blade, I can still cut berry brambles, I can cut small saplings, which who would have thought? And not hurt the blade because then you got the right, it's all about the stroke when you're hitting something big, you got to have a slicing motion, not a choppy motion. Okay. It just gets to hang out. You just gotta get. You just gotta do it. Yep. And I, you know, I'm good enough now that I really believe I can mow putting greens. Wow. I mean, I do it around the farm. You know, sometimes I'm only mowing two inches of grass just because some of it's long, some of it's not, and I want it all to look easy. There it is. Oh. There, that was a good one. Yeah, you can feel it. You can yeah. feel it like. And it's all about because the closer to the ground you got, the less it's going to want to bend over anyway. And so that's all about that. The lucky thing is this has been mowed, so there's no thatch, so it makes it good that way. Because you went across and mow where it hasn't been mowed, uh, it would take me three times as long to mow that, but I could. That was a good one.
take you to a whole nother. I feel like I'll probably get it in about four hours. I think so. And that was good enough so that you get going and then you'd fine tune it. But it's kind of like bowling too. You know, sometimes you, after you haven't bowled for a while, you can do really great. And then after you mowed or bowled for a while, then nothing's happening. And that happens with scything too. There it is. That, yeah, you're getting good. There it is. Because most of the time, um, novices don't make much of a windrow. And look at your windrow. It's wow. pretty good. I, I want to show you how a, wow. you know, I'll show you later how a hay fork can pick that up. Because I can probably take, okay. when this is dry, yeah. I can take a hay fork and pick up about probably 30 feet of that on one fork. Cool. Okay, so you just, all you do is imagine this is a hay fork. I just do this. Oh. And then I just pick it up. Nice. And then I'll show you when we're moving the mulch down there into the beds how I do it with a tarp. Okay. That's an old lawn care trick. We used to move leaves around. It's, but again, nothing's new in agriculture, like Elliot Coleman said last night in that video. I mean, it's just a travoy. You know, the, the Indians used to use. So the fact that, you know, it'll go over, it doesn't have the wheels, so it'll go over this rough ground and it's not hard. Yeah. And then once you dump it, it only weighs ounces when I'm coming back. Do you harvest to put it on your gardens when it's green or do you let it dry out like hay? Depends on what I want to do. If I want to do a smother crop, you know, kind of like a sheet mulch. I stopped using cardboard because you don't need it here. If you've got the volume, you don't need cardboard. I've you smothered use this instead of cardboard to smother the weeds. It's about I like that. critical mass, though. This is non-toxic. Right. I mean, potentially cardboard is. I've got a friend that was in publishing, and so, you know, it's a waste stream, but it's potentially a problem, and you just don't need it. No. And you got to collect it. So I've I like actually, this. so you familiar with witchgrass? I don't think Carolina, they got it. Three-acre fields, 10 days. It's coming out and getting a morning workout. And, and it looks beautiful. You're, you're getting the green grass off of it. You're using it as mulch. It's feeding your life that is in the soil. The good stuff, not the bad stuff. Jim, let me ask you what you think about this because I do rotationally grazing. I would run cattle along through here, moving them every day. I think I would go back with the scythe and get what they missed. Might be would that worth be a it. good idea? It might be Instead worth it. Instead of going behind them with a the mower? The or? Thing I see, yeah, definitely. If you're doing that with a mower, I definitely do with a scythe. But the thing about... You know, there is scythe etiquette, but even walking through this when it's a little taller, it bends it down, makes it harder to mow. So the fact that the cows have been across, it'd be harder to mow. But then, you know, I could do it. So as you got better at it, you could okay, do it too. Okay. Um, what are some other uses of the scythe? It's the killer trim tool. Um, well, well, I'll show you how you can mow around Would you that. recommend people get this instead of a string trimmer and mowing their grass? I've been in lawn care for 20 years. <laughs> I'd never touch a weed whacker again. Okay. And then look what it can also <laughs> do. new weed whacker, guys. What? This is the same thing we were cutting the fine grass with. But it's same all about Look, he's not even putting any strength into it. He's not even breathing hard, folks. I mean, it's incredible. And then, <laughs> you know, but you wouldn't want to do that with something that's just been peened with that fine edge. Okay. So it's better to, like, if I know I'm going to go and stuff like that, I'll do it after I mowed for four hours before <laughs> I peen again. Next thing we know, he's going to be shaving his face with this thing. Well, you know, believe it or not, <laughs> oh, I watched this video of this guy in somewhere in Europe who was clearing a ditch bank. Yeah. He was doing, like, the bonsai thing. Oh, wow. You know, he'd be down here, and then he'd be doing stuff up there. Trimming the trees. Yeah, but I want to show you how good it is. I mean, that's not very thick around there, but see how fine that grass is? That's yeah. Like, you'd think that'd be hard to cut, right? But, I mean, it's still cut. Wow. That's like, hair, that's like hair on your arm, such fine grass. Right. But look okay, at look how he's starting on that tree. You know, if you want, so, you know how, I mean, I was good wow. at weed whacking, right? 
You cannot do good with a weed whacker. No, not you can't. Um, not without hitting that tree. Yeah, I mean, because you don't have to hardly move. You do have to position yourself, but. It's just the ultimate permaculture tool. Talk about chop and drop. And you mulched right there. You didn't sling it off right. somewhere else. And it, I didn't have to deal with right the there. stuff hitting me in the eyes or the noise. No fuel, no smell. That was my original draw to it, but now it's, it's hands down a better tool. It's nothing about the aesthetics or the cost. It's about that it works better. Nice. Which I would have never believed. Hi, folks. I'm Ted Green. I'm the founder member of the Ancient Tree Forum in the UK and it's a group of people which are actually very passionate about all aspects of old trees. But when you talk about old trees, old trees were always in the past working trees. Every tree that survives today that is old actually had to work for its living. And this first picture shows you a scene which could have been taken 7,000 years ago or 7 minutes ago because it is really agroforestry. We call it wood pasture but the two are synonymous. Man started in wood pasture, this great savanna of, of land across Europe which wasn't dense forest. So if you like, wood pasture then became agroforestry. So the two run together and it's so important. Cows, animals, trees, working trees. Every tree has to work for a living. The next picture is showing you actually an old oak pollard which came out of a river in Britain and it's been carbon dated 3,400 years ago. And it's a pollard, in Britain we call them pollards, where the top is cut and it's, it was cut by man 3,400 years ago. And this is showing you one we found recently in a small wood in Britain. Exactly the same again. There's no difference. So history, that side of history was perpetuated down the centuries. Nothing really changed. The trees were grown and selected for what their uses were and they carried on being done. Right up to almost to the present day. And this is from the, the Meurs between Belgium and Holland and Two or three of those trees there, we can tell, were cut by man before they finished up in the mud of the river. And they are 18,000 years old. These trees are in Normandy. They look very similar to the ones that came out of the Meurs. And the small branches on the side were cut, or are cut still, on a regular basis. And presumably, they're either cut for starting fires, or it's tree hay. Cutting branches with leaves on in the summer and using them in the winter for tree hay. It's a fascinating story. This picture shows you uh, a wooden tool which is 6,000 years old. It's got flints in the blade and look how similar it looks to a modern day saw. The people that found it, the archaeologists, say it was for cutting cereals and hay. But what's that knob doing? The knob reminds me, and the whole picture reminds me, of a saw. They were cutting branches. Here are some sheep which have found a fallen limb and they go straight in and eat the vegetation. This is where I think man got the idea 
of tree hay. And there's one of my old friends. There she is into it. We call it salex, a salex bush. And she's found, got her neck over the branch, pulled it down, and she's eating it. And in this case, I think the sallow is for medicine. She is self-medicating. Fascinating. That instinct is still there. And here, this is in Scotland, and you can see the ring of stones, which is where they kept the animals in the winter or at night. But the two trees are salix, and they're two pollards. And I'm sure the shepherds of that day knew that those trees would, well, be, could be used for medicine for the animals. And this is us starting new experiments or trying to relearn or reinvent the wheel again in the UK. And this is a Fraxinus, and we've cut some and hung them up to dry, as we thought was a traditional way of doing it. And there they are on a, on a, a horizontal limb, and they're going to be left to dry and put into bundles. What we did was, in fact, we learned that don't leave them there too long, and they should be in a tight bundle. And of course, any farmer will tell you, when you store hay, it has to be very tight. So we've got it wrong. There we are, feeding the Exmoor ponies in the winter. And there you go, the cows have found it. They can't wait to get in to, to feed on these, we call them faggots in Britain. Cows again eating them. And if you look at that, that, that those cut branches there, are probably six, seven months old, and as you can see, some of them are still green. They've retained the green greenness. This is an area where I'd like to explore. It shows some green islands on the leaf. And these green islands are caused, in this case, by a disease. And what the disease does during its life cycle, it actually inhibits the tree's manufacturing minerals and nutrients and sugars, but it inhibits them, uh, allowing the tree to take them back to itself. It stores them in these green islands. So in actual fact, at the end of the year, when the, the tree starts to withdraw all its resources, autumn, uh, the fungus stops it happening. And these minerals and nutrients and trace elements are trapped in those green islands. There you go. There's a cow. You can actually see her tongue, and she's seeking out these, these leaves on the ground with green islands. That's instinct. That goes right back to day one, and we're missing a trick, because what's in those minerals and what's trapped in those trace elements? Are they a fundamental part of, of a, an animal's diet, which we've taken away? Or we can restore, of course. And there's a selection of different species of leaves showing the... Um, the Green Islands. This picture is in Norway of some pollard trees where there's been a bit experiment on pollard trees in a herbridge meadow, a herbridge meadow without pollard trees and an, and an improved grassland. And they looked at the, the, the nutrient values of those three sites and the best one was, of course, the one with the pollard trees on, because presumably the years that the trees aren't being pollard in, they are producing leaves, which go down into the ground, get recycled in the mineral and nutrient recycling.
Here we're starting to start to make new pollards. We think it's an essential part of our cultural history, which has been lost or being lost throughout Europe, is cutting trees for whatever resource we need. And in Britain, as I say, we call them pollards. So generally speaking, we want to cut them when probably they're the diameter of your thumb. But, and, and you can cut them straight across, or you can cut them where there's a fork to get what we call in Britain a bolling, or the beginnings of a bolling. This is maybe the third cut. These are, it's all fraxinous at the moment, you're seeing. And, and look at the wood you can, you can get from that, that bolling, or that, where that fist is. Here we are where they're, they're really striking, we call it striking, they're flashing again and there's a lot of, lot of new growth on those trees. And this is probably done on a three or four year rotation, depending on what they want the use is for. Hi folks, uh, I'm with Alan, who's been managing some lovely ash, ash trees and created a lot of pollards. And the, the, the cuts are being used to make tree hay, but I'd love to introduce Alan and get him to talk about how he's done them. Alan. So we uh, climbed up as high as we could and we used uh, an axe uh, just to cut it just above any points, growth points, any splits. And they, they seem to have worked really well, especially these young ones have gone really well. They? Yeah, for the second time. So these have been cut twice. If you could start with one about the diameter of, say, a broom handle, because we know that all the wood is sapwood, and the actual sapwood around the ring calluses over. But as Alan's pointed out, he's done them much, much older. And this one, uh, maybe the second time, and we're going to look at another tree in a minute, where it's probably anything up to 20 centimetres. But we are talking about ash, and we're never sure really about some of the other trees. So we're specific on ash, but I think the essence of this was for me was it was done with an axe, because that's what the old boys would have used. This is a tree which is probably by its girth just about the limit for when you wanted to start cutting. But what Alan has actually done. He's cut the tree to the, to the fork, meaning that he's gone up the two limbs, the two fork, the fork, and cut uh, three limbs, you can't see one, and a maximum of about 19 to 20 centimetres. The tree was then successfully, successfully in the fact that he put on lots of stems, and he's gone up another metre to two metres and cut the tree again. So in other words, if we want, we want tree fodder now, we've got to go to that first, that last two metres above the last poly. So I probably would not try to do another pollen on it because it's getting very high. And we've got to think about the practical side of doing these things. But it's a, a brilliant tree and a brilliant example of, of what, what people can do to get tree hay. And equally at the same time, at some stage, he's going to get some limbs of a decent size, which he can use for all sorts of things, fence posts, wood fuel, anything. So he's, he's getting more than one use from this tree. Alan, this is one of the best examples I've ever seen of what we call today 
restoration pollarding or conservation pollarding because it's a massive old ash tree which is well out of the rotation which it would have been in. Can, can you can you just describe what they actually did here because it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was a lovely old pollard and it was so old it was starting to pull itself apart and we got the tree surgeon to take the weight off of it. Long branches and it's now sprouted and it's survived. We did that about five years ago. Wow. So, a serious, serious example of what we want, how we want to manage our old trees. This is this is cultural history. It's, it's a landscape tree, yes, but it's so much part of their culture. It dates right back, right back to early man. We're just going to try and feed these these cows with some almas. I mean, it's it's a bit early in the year to use it, but it's a, just an illustration of what what they love. In fact, it's interesting. At the moment, one of them doesn't know what to do with it. But if I move up to these two individuals, they're going mad. So there you go. Now this is the sort of thing which would have happened in the Mediterranean, would happen in the Mediterranean, because in the Mediterranean there's less green vegetation in the summer, whereas what we would do in the northern hemisphere is cut this, dry it, and use it in the winter when we haven't got much green vegetation. to uh, what we call faggots in Britain and uh, branches we cut mainly from ash, uh, fraxinus uh, and almus and I think we've even used prunus and um, coriolis, coriolis. So there's a whole mixture of, of twigs we've got in here and they, these were cut in July last year. And in a similar fashion to why the, when you cut hay, you try and cut hay when all the nutrients and minerals and everything is up in the leaf. And so you cut it and trap them in. And the same applies to these. And what's interesting about these, these this is now seven or eight months on, and they still smell nice. This is what gets me, intrigues me, that we by trapping them in, we've actually also trapped in the smell. But please note, some of this, eight, nine months after we cut it, is still green. To me, it's almost like a feeding frenzy, and as if they've never eaten real food before. They're absolutely, one, one or two just haven't learned yet, but the rest are absolutely mad. And again, interestingly, because they're more interested in this dried material than they were in the fresh, which we gave them a few seconds ago. And two of them in particular absolutely love it. And they still got that hereditary gin bank.
sustainability to me means agroforestry and wood pasture, of course. I've got to, I can't split the two. But it's a system which has probably been in practice since man stood up. And the one thing that it does provide is a biological continuity. Because very little of it's changed. It's basically the same animals. It's Man's changed a bit, but it's the same. The whole system is basically the same. We may think we've improved upon it, but in actual fact, it's still sustainable. So tree hay is literally dried leaves and branches of many different tree species um, that we can then bundle up and keep until winter. Tree hay has been something that has been done certainly in the British Isles for hundreds and hundreds of years, predates the making of grass hay, certainly. So it's a very ancient form of storing uh, summer's goodness for our ruminant livestock and being able to feed it to them in the winter when uh, food is scarce. Trees are such an important part of the permaculture design here at Tappanoff Farm. And a lot of these trees that we've been putting in have been purposely planted to harvest tree hay from at a later date. Of course, some of the trees that we had already here that have grown up over the last 10 years of us living here, like this sycamore. Um, we've pollarded, which means cutting uh, the tree high up the trunk here. Coppicing is cutting at ground level. And of course, with a lot of the deciduous trees uh, that we have here in the UK, um, if you cut them down, they regrow. And pollarding is cutting higher up so that if you've got deer or goats, uh, you cut it above browse level, which means that they don't, they can't reach up to browse off all the young shoots. We've got a lot of growth in this tree. Um, we're going to have some nice uprights for our dead hedges. Our dead, you can see our dead hedges here. And we've always, always got to try and source these sturdy upright sticks or posts. Uh, and this sycamore is definitely going to be able to give us that. But yes, the other thing we can do is cut down the, the regrowth um, around this time of year, summer to late summer, bundle that up, dry it, uh, and just like a bale of grass hay, we can then feed that to the sheep and goats in winter. While we've been designing agroforestry systems like this one behind me to be able to produce tree hay and forage for the goats and the sheep, um, they're still quite young and so we're not quite ready yet to harvest some of the pollarded alders for example. We're going to let them grow on a bit. We've got an abundance of trees on the farm that we can make tree hay from. Um, in fact a lot of the hedges that we've planted over the years are definitely in need of a bit of a prune. Uh, to keep the sunlight coming in and that's what we're going to be doing today so this year we still don't really need to cut the dedicated tree hay or forage trees we can still gather a lot of our tree hay needs from hedges such as this one this is a willow hedge that we've got growing along this access road and as you can see it's towering above me and the goats absolutely love this willow this is a hybrid willow so the next job is we're going to be cutting that. I'm going to go and get the trailer.
Right, we're starting to make a dent in this willow hedge that's outside the small polytunnel. I've been cutting down the section of the hedge that's lying over our woodshed roof, which needed done anyway. I love it when maintenance gives you a yield. Rose has been making a window here, getting some of the smaller stuff and just bundling it together. Got one being bundled as we speak. going to help the tomato tunnel which does surprisingly well considering it's had quite a large hedge to the south of it it's got a reasonably large hedge to the west of it and then quite a few trees to the east and the north it's just surrounded by trees so yeah no, it's great to get especially the south just um trimmed down we've got this lovely aronia berry that james planted a while ago here that we're keeping but otherwise and a cobnut behind but um otherwise all of this is going to be nice and low, um, which is great. And obviously food for the goats. So yeah, win-win and bank stabilization. I planted this hedge in 2013. It's just one foot cuttings of willow. And that was because it's a very, it's quite a steep slope down there. That's to the back of our cottage. Um, so put the willow in just to stabilize the bank. It's so great knowing that we're getting dried forage for the goats, fresh forage for the goats and the sheep. We'll be getting a little bit of wood fuel from this because there's definitely some quite thick uh, trunks and branches that are too thick to bundle up as uh, tree hay. So I'm just making a bundle at the moment with the stuff that James was cutting from the other side there on the bank. Um, and this is much larger than the bits that I was trimming off the top. As he mentioned, I mean, these thicker bits um, well, these could actually be used uh, for wood fuel, but um, the smaller stems here, we're still keeping them in, um, and the goats will still enjoy these, so they'll they'll definitely debark them um, and things. So that it's worth still, you know, you don't just want the leaves, at least not for the goats anyway. And we did observe the sheep doing quite a lot of uh, debarking as well. So yeah, it's it's good to have that. It's also what holds the leaves on, obviously. Um, I've definitely found like the easiest stuff, the stuff that I was started making the bundles with uh, here. You can see it was like a really young stem and that's when you get, when you've just, uh, and you can snap that off like, so when you've just, when you've, the previous year kind of coppiced or pollarded your willow, you get these lovely fresh young shoots and they just snap off and there's, you know, there is still stem there, but they're just perfect. They bundle together, they're not all in crazy directions like some of the bigger bits are um, so yeah it's, it's, there's definitely a difference um, so this one requires more work because we have to trim the side branches off and bundle them together um, but yes as James said still worth doing because we get the extra bits of wood and we're just maintaining this hedge as well. It'll be great when our pollarded agroforestry plantings that we've made around the farm mature um, because we will be able to cut tree hay in a little bit more of a controlled manner hopefully sort of working around the farm um, year by year on a rotation of the trees, just treating it like any crop that we would grow. We just think it's so important to be able to feed this to our ruminants because this is certainly the, the more natural diet for the goats uh, and the more native breeds of sheep. Um, it's definitely their preferred food. The goats are browsers rather than grazers, so tree is their natural diet. So that's really important to us to be able to 
feed them um, on the trees that we've got growing in abundance around us. We can make this way easier than we can make grass hay. The amount of work involved um, for us to kind of cut the grass and bale that and make sure it's really dry. We're bundling this fresh, that's a huge difference. There's a big difference, especially in this kind of climate that we've got. Um, you know, it's quite wet in Scotland or this area of Scotland that we're in. To actually have to rely on trying to kind of uh, dry, solar dry your grass, for example, before you bale that up into hay if you're not making silage, it's, it's difficult. So for us, um, with our kind of, oh, we have a lot of trees, we've got a lot of willow and we can bundle it fresh. It's full, it's uh, full of nutrients um, for the goats, um, has lots of kind of medicinal effects. It's, yeah, the fact that it's easier is just a total win. birch that I cut earlier so uh, birch is enjoyed by the goats and the sheep as well many different varieties we're cutting willow today there's the birch um, we've got aspen hazel all with their own different nutrient profiles some have more calcium some more protein a lovely varied diet for our animals what we don't use is firewood we can also put into our dead hedges that can become firewood can can become kindling uh, later on if we wanted to but otherwise it just keeps our brash hedges topped up I'm just going to take some of the little scraps to the goats right now and um, there's still quite a lot of leaves here so they'll enjoy these Perfect weather for making the tree hay. It's been pretty wet recently, um, which is great for the garden. But um, today it's been very sunny and a really strong wind, so it's dried up a lot of the moisture off of the leaves. Obviously we are bundling it wet, and um, it does seem to dry very well. I had my doubts the first few years we made this, bundling it up, thinking, well, certainly the center is gonna rot or something. But actually the center leaves, when we opened them up in winter to feed to the Livestock, it was the center leaves that still were green. space our ruined blacksmith building we've already got a bit of tree hay in here that we bundled up a month ago that's 
dried up nicely now. So what we're thinking is we're gonna use this door that's behind me here. As you can see, it's a slatted door. It's a windy day today. I can feel that wind coming right in through those slats, so perfect for drying. So we're gonna chuck these pallets on the ground so that the bundles are kept off the ground. And then we're just gonna stack them against the door um, so that they can dry. come up to this area of silver pasture that we call goose wood started off as goat wood but we realized that the distance that we set the trees apart to give grazing strips in between the productive trees was a little bit too narrow for the goats needs so it's perfect for the geese and it's really great for the chickens who are in here at the moment we started developing this system about two years ago pollarding the trees that you can see on either side of me here and planting some new trees so while there is quite a lot of growth, we're gonna leave them to grow on for another year or so. Um, that's why we were taking tree material from hedges and things uh, that need cutting back so that we can let these silver pasture systems mature before we take a harvest. But just now, we're gonna cut off some of the lower side branches that have been growing. That means we can put the electric netting a lot closer to the tree trunks. Um, and with the branches as they are right now, they'll poke through the netting and cause lots of problems also means that when we've got the hens in here they don't go and lay their eggs underneath these low-lying branches and when they do that's very hard for us to find the eggs so yeah just some good reasons to kind of tidy up and find the stems of these pollarded trees and uh, just gives us a bit more tree hay to add to the bundles that we just took down to the smithy this episode and want to hear more like it you can do three simple things right now one you can subscribe to permaculture freedom podcast if you haven't yet number two you can leave a short review for us on itunes and third share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too thank you i really appreciate your support until next time take care my friend